0: Welcome to the Building Texas Business Podcast. Interviews with thought leaders and organizational visionaries from across industry. Join us as we talk about the latest trends, challenges, and growth opportunities to take your business to the next level. The Building Texas Business Podcast is brought to you by Boyer Miller, providing counsel beyond expectations. Find out how we can make a meaningful difference to your business at BoyerMiller.com. And by your podcast team, where having your own podcast is as easy as being a guest on ours. Discover more at yourpodcast.team. Now here's your host, Chris Hanslick. In this episode, you'll meet Jason Ferguson, managing partner of Calvetti Ferguson, a CPA firm with offices throughout Texas. You will learn from Jason the importance of figuring out who your company really is and what it stands for, and that it is never too late to have that conversation. Jason firmly believes that staying disciplined and committed to building a collaborative culture is the key to success for any company. All right, Jason, I want to... Welcome you to Building Texas Business, and thank you for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. i like to kind of just get right in it, man. Tell the people a little bit about yourself. You know, you're the managing partner at Calvetti Ferguson. Tell us kind of what Calvetti Ferguson is and how it came to be.
1: Yeah, so Calvetti Ferguson is a what we call a full-service CPA firm. So we do audit, tax, advisory, technology, advisory, accounting services. So we can handle pretty much anything a company throws at us. We have offices in Houston, Dallas, Fort Worth, and San Antonio. Then this is our 20th year, uh, which is crazy to think about. It doesn't feel like it's been 20 years, but it'll be 20 years in June. And so that's, I mean, that's who we are. And what we're about is just serving entrepreneurs first and foremost. What we care most about is the culture of the client the, the way the client wants to be served, kind of how they see the world. We could be the most technically competent group to handle a client in a given market or city. But if we don't operate and serve clients the way they want to be served, it won't matter because we'll never meet their expectations. So we work best with entrepreneurs, entrepreneurial oriented companies
0: and entrepreneurs themselves. That's great. I mean, I can't believe, yeah, 20 years goes fast at it. It's super fast. Well, and you mentioned, you know, serving entrepreneurs. I think having gotten to know you, that has to be easier because you're an entrepreneur yourself, right? Very much so, much to my
1: wife's chagrin many times. (laughs) And this wasn't my first entrepreneurial Jump in. I've had several. So, yeah, I'm an entrepreneur and I just have a heart for entrepreneurs and how they build things and create out of nothing and take those risks, the
0: risks they take. So, yeah, it makes it fun to be alongside of them, helping them, you know, maybe make that risk not look as big as they think it might be.
1: Yeah, and most of them are very good at. They're, whatever their operation is, what, you know, they're very good at making the widget and reprocessing the widget and all of those things, maybe not as good on the financial aspect of it. And so we really enjoy coming alongside and making sure that entrepreneur's financial back door is closed and, and that that entrepreneur is risk mitigated in that area so they can focus on their business and what they're
0: doing. So when did you know you kind of had this entrepreneurial spirit in yourself?
1: Oh, pretty early on. I came up in public accounting and then I left and went into industry and I a company called PGS, which is one of the largest floating production ocean bottom seismic companies in the world. And then I was sold over into Halliburton and ultimately came global control over vision Halliburton and I knew I didn't want, I didn't enjoy that corporate environment that uh, the just the grinds you've got to go through and the games you got to play. And so I very quickly figured out in my career that I may be unemployable. <laughs> so, so that it was pretty early on that I figured that out. And then I retired from Halliburton. And I thought I was done. I was very young, but I thought I was done just because I didn't like the the working corporate Grind. I was home less than six months. My wife said, this is not going to work. I, at Halliburton, the last three years, I was out of the country 180 to 220 days. And so that means I was completely out of pocket for half the year. And so me suddenly being home all the time, she said, this isn't going to work. We can't spend the rest of our days. You micromanaging me. You got to figure something out. There's got to be something between being halfway around the world half the year and being in my face the entire time. And you need to find it. And so I called Jim Calvetti, who was at PGS in January two thousand three. I'd taken a chief restructure advisory role with a company just to get out of the house. Just to the yeah. Called him on day two, said Jim, it's gonna take me six months to get through this and my wife's made it clear I cannot come home full time. So what do you think about starting a consulting firm? And at the time he was at PGS. PGS is a Norwegian company. The Norwegians had taken over the board and they were Telling every executive they had to move to Oslo and he wasn't going to move to Oslo. So he said, fine, let's do it. So we actually started as a consulting firm, just two guys out there, sick of international travel, needing to stay busy and morphed into a CPA firm. So,
0: how did, I mean, so that's a, I mean, crazy, interesting story. How did that evolve from consulting to a CPA firm with offices in four cities? So, we didn't have any strategy or forethought. We were
1: just two guys too young to retire and needing to stay busy, but didn't want to travel anymore. And we had two big flaws with that. One was all of our contacts at that point, pretty much at least business contacts and friends, you know, business colleagues, we would call friends. They were senior finance and accounting executives for multi-billion dollar multinational oil and gas oil service companies. And then number two, they winning not that Jim and I hadn't, done business in the world, physically been there and done business. So as we started calling on our friends saying, Hey, we're out here just trying to stay busy. You need help with anything, let us know. And they'd go, yeah, you know, I have a problem with some stuff in my, my office and back office and operations that's going on in Colombia. Would you mind, I may be able to get down there, would you mind going down there? And so we ended up right back on the road again. Well, Sarbanes-Oxley came along and all these big companies had to separate their audit and tax work. And they didn't want to give it to one of the big four because they didn't know how it was all going to work out. And so they started asking us if we'd take their tax work. So we brought the PGS tax director over and started taking tax work. And these were very large clients. Baker Hughes, Chicago Bridge & Iron, Shaw Group, Conoco Phillips. And so... Within six months, she came to us and said, you gotta, we got to stop taking tax work. Right. I mean, there's too much here. And Jim and I both have an audit background, so we kind of looked at each other and said, I guess we're halfway to the CPA firm. might as well take audits, too. And, and so we started taking audits. And then in May of 2008, I spent my birthday in Octavi, Kazakhstan. We'd been in business five years, right at five years. It's 32 hours to Octobe, 32 hours back. I spent one day in the client office. They had to have me go deal with something. And that one day was my birthday, 12-hour time difference between Houston and Octobie, And I called my wife that night. And I said, you know, I retired from Halliburton, got off the road. And here I am in Octobie, Kazakhstan. I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm sure she was on the other end of the line going, yeah, right. I've heard, <laughs> I've heard this, before. this before. So I came back and I told Jim, Jim, we got to figure out what we have because I don't think I really like it. And if I wanted to travel like this... And and be fully leaned into this international business. I would have stayed at Halliburton. And so we took the rest of the year looking to see what we had, and believe it or not, we had the first thing we had to conclude was we were a CPA firm that did some consulting, not a consulting firm that dabbled in some CPA work. And so we we initially said, let's sell it. Because we had sold quite a few businesses, he and I. And then we concluded that it wasn't. this wasn't the type of business that was going to be sold like everything else. So we said, okay, here's what we have. We have a CPA firm. CPA firm's basically an annuity. So let's de-risk this thing. And the big risks we had in our business was labor. The three big risks you have in our business, labor pool, which is staffing, concentration, and macroeconomic risk. So we concluded that we needed to go into other markets to tap into other labor pools. But before we even got to that point, when we concluded we didn't like what we had, we said we got to remake this thing. We had very large tax clients and we couldn't have the culture we wanted and serve those very large tax clients. It was very churn and burn, grind people up culture in our tax group. We didn't like that culture on our audit side, we served mostly family-owned businesses, but we did the tax work for those too, and those folks were, those clients were getting deprioritized in the tax world to the Baker Hughes and Phillips. and so our audit partners were getting an earful about the bad service they were getting, but we liked the culture we had in the audit side, which was very relationship, more family-oriented culture. We had a governance risk compliance practice, and nobody wanted to do that work anymore. Everybody hated it, so we came up with a five-year plan to remake the firm. And at the time we decided to do that, at the end of 2008, we were about 95 professionals. And the last part of that plan, we moved our offices downtown because we had another company that we had started that shared offices with Coyote Ferguson. So when we moved downtown in 2012, the at the beginning of 2013, essentially, we were 22 total employees. So... I meet with every, we do start classes twice a month. I meet with them twice a month and go over a new hire presentation. I tell all of them, I've started this firm twice. I'm not interested in starting a third time. So we're very intentional about
0: our culture, the clients we take on and all those things. That's great. So, I mean, just listening to that story, right? There's some lessons learned or to be learned by entrepreneurs or people that may be thinking about starting their own company. And it sounds like it. Took you, I think you said around the five year mark, maybe, but it was that conversation about who are we really as an organization, right? You just kind of did it on a whim, you and Jim, and evolved and kept yourself busy, but then you had that realization we got to figure out who we are. I think every company either they go through that or they should go through that, right? To really hone in on their identity so that they can start to build a culture and serve either serve clients or customers in a way that your workforce can align behind. What, I mean, how did that, I guess, how did that play out for Calvetti, or how is it playing out?
1: Yeah. You know, I would, so the way I would describe it is we woke up five years in and said, okay, we actually have a good business here, but this business just happened to us. It's not something, it's not something that that we it, and because it just happened instead of it being intentional on what we wanted to do what kind of culture we wanted to have which uh, when you determine what kind of culture you want to have that dictates that dictates the type of people you hire that dictates the type of product or service you're going to deliver uh, that dictates the types of customers or clients you're going to take in. Yeah, for sure. Because you can't control any of that. So we just the we woke up 5 years in and said we don't it wasn't the business we were doing. I mean, we didn't mind doing CPA service business. What we didn't like that we had was we didn't we were disjointed because we weren't intentional about what we were doing. We had different cultures and different groups. Some of the cultures were fine, some weren't. But because we were just a completely disjointed culture and environment, we, we, had, we were working for the business wasn't working for us. And so that was the big thing that we woke up to. And unfortunately, it took me having to go halfway around the world to in a very short order to have that light bulb moment. But that was the big thing. And so we, you know, we just broke it down and said, OK, what do we want to uh, To come into and work in every day. What do you want to build, right? Exactly. What do we want to build? What kind of clients do we want to serve that's going to allow us to have the culture? Because we spend our time interacting in our office and with our people. And what do we want that to be? And what's really important to us? And we concluded what was really important to us was we wanted to provide careers for people. We wanted to provide opportunity for people. To do that, there were a lot of fundamental
0: things we had to change. So the other lesson I hear in that that I hope you know people listening will take away is it's never too late to have that conversation, right? You're you're five years in, and now you're 15 years from that, and your business is thriving and healthy and doing all the things that you once you got intentional about. Now you're hitting on all those. It just took you know, that five the first five years to figure that out. So I think that's good. What I'd like to hear from you is kind of. Now that you've been intentional about building culture, how would you describe the culture at Calvetti Ferguson? Our culture
1: hangs on our core values that is, we use the acronym growth. It's all over our offices. It's all over our employee portion of the website. It's growth, great. Go above and beyond for your team, community, client. Ours, respectful. There's nobody that's any more important than anybody else in the firm. We all have a role to play. And the way we're all successful, we all have to play our roles the best of our ability. O is open. You got to be open to hear other people's perspectives. W is willing. You got to be willing to share your opinion. All of us traveled a different road to January 27, 2023. And if we want to make the most correct decisions on dealing with challenges, we need to leverage all those experiences. So we got to be open to hear them. And we got to be willing to share them. T is a trustworthy environment in order to be. In order to for people to be willing to to share their perspectives, they got to trust it's not going to get held against them, right? Or come back on them. And the H is honest. Be honest, but give grace, and because you're going to make some mistakes, and and you're going to appreciate that someone doesn't hold them against you. And two weeks later, they're going to make some mistakes and appreciate you're not holding against them. So those are our core values. There are literally thousands of snap decisions that get made in every organization by the leadership in that organization and the accumulation of those of decisions that get made on a daily basis, that creates your culture. Absolutely. That is what drives the culture. And those snap decisions made by, in our case, partners in our firm, directors in our firm, managers, senior managers in our firm, they're making them based on their core values. And, and so... It's imperative that everybody, especially in the leadership positions, leadership team within your organization has similar enough core values that they make the majority, the overwhelming majority of those SNAP decisions directionally the same. And if that's the case, then you can control your culture and then you have your culture. And our culture is one of investing in people. We believe very deeply that we partner with people in their career, get the opportunity to participate in their career with them, hopefully until they sit on that beach in Florida, retired, looking back over their career. But we know circumstances change and people's career goals change. But what we want more than anything else is when they look back over their career, they say our time at Calvary-Ferguson was time well spent. We It moved me closer to my career goals, whatever that was. I have better tools in my toolbox when I left Calvary-Ferguson
0: than when I got to Calvary-Ferguson. That's what we strive for every day, and that's our culture. That's great. So talk to me a little bit about what are the things you're doing to to, make, to grow and maintain that culture across multiple offices in different cities. Will the beatings continue to
1: morale improves? No. So we do have we do go have people that go to the other offices quite frequently. I just had all the partners in Houston from all the offices for a day and a half. So so we do a lot of that. We have what we call we do intentional things. We have what we call connection teams. where We have people that are in teams of nine, ten people that are cross departmental. In each office and they get together and do social things together. We do a lot of intentional things like that. We have a one firm mentality, so we're not managed by geography. I couldn't tell you what Dallas office revenue was because we don't even run reports that way. Interesting. If you're in the Dallas office, Although the office managing partner in Dallas is an insurance partner and you're a tax manager, you actually report up through to the tax partner in charge of the tax department. You do not report to the office managing partner in Dallas. So it, we're service line managed, run, and driven, which then allows – it takes a lot of that geography away. Right. To where we've got people working together. Across There's a natural the integration
0: across all the offices. Exactly.
1: There. So but even with that, even though you manage and run things that way, you still have to there's just there's no substitute for building a relationship through social interactions and events. Yeah. so you still have to get
0: people going between offices and stuff. So that brings up a good point. So you mentioned you know social interaction and how it's critical to building and maintaining culture. So what are you doing at Calvetty Ferguson? We're, in the realm of hybrid work in the office versus out of the office? How are you managing through that? So we we have been out front on that.
1: Once again, understanding that our, that our background on this business was we were not intentional and didn't like what we had. And so what we really wanted to make sure of was our culture was what's most important to us and the people and developing people and the careers most important to us. So we very quickly said, we can't risk our culture. We we can't do that. So we've been mandatory three days in the office since July of 2020. Now we've done it in different ways. We've had different policies around what those three days look like, but we were mandatory and have been mandatory three days in the office just because we just didn't want to risk the culture and the environment. And I don't know if it's because we've been that way for so long or there's... We just happen to fit a niche in the market currently that appeals to a certain, to some people. But I would say easily fifty to seventy five percent of our folks are in four days a week, even though they only have to be there three days a week. So it's been so it's been easier for us to maintain. Now, what we did do right off the bat is we started these connection teams, right? And that I mean that has been incredible. So that's a newer thing in the last couple of years? We started that at the end of 2020. Okay. Because once again, we didn't know when we were, or the middle of 2020, kind of pretty much right when the shutdown happened in March of 2020, I went to our head of HR and said, look, we got to figure out how to keep these people connected. And so he and the head of our marketing got together and came up with this, this Connection team, we call them C team. We do what we call monthly catch ups over lunch, spelled with a K. And there's games and things everybody do across all the offices. And so we do a lot of activities like that, bringing people together. Now the C teams are all in person, and the team only gets credit for an event they're doing for the people that show up because the idea was we're not in the office, you know, don't especially initially. Can't have everybody in the office, but we can get together in groups of eight to ten people, you know, and go bowling or you know whatever, right? right? Yeah. So we do things like that. And even though we are back in the office and pretty much everybody's back in the office, we've kept all that stuff up because they love everybody loves it and has a good and enjoys connecting with those things. So, we,
0: when you look back over the last fifteen to twenty years, and you, what type of advice? Based on your experiences and what you've learned, you know, what would you give someone that's thinking about starting just a company? It doesn't matter in what industry. What are some of the one or two things you would tell an entrepreneur or aspiring entrepreneur, learn from my mistake or look, you know, do this? Or my recommendation is think about this before you launch or, or as you're making that plan. What were a couple of those tidbits?
1: One, think about what you want your company to look like from a culture environment. More of that, that soft, soft environment side. Think about that first and foremost. What do you want this company to look like? Don't ever do anything for money. If you do things for money, you'll be a slave to that forever. You will never be able to pick your customers. You will never be able to decide that you need to go a different direction with a product or a service. You will be a slave to that money your entire time that you're building the business. And, and then you'll ultimately hopefully make it to where your business is, is a good business. But there's a good chance there's a chance you may not your day to day life. Right. So, you know, I would say decide what you want your feel and look and culture and environment to be for your business The services and the products, you're starting this business because you know you know what you're doing there. It's rare that people just decide, you know what, I've never done any law work in my entire life. I'm not even an attorney, but I'm going to start a law firm. Right. They generally start things that they have expertise in. So don't worry about, you know, how am I going to find the customer or how am I going to manufacture the widget. You know how to do that. Think first and foremost, what do I want this company's look and feel to be? What do I want to get up every morning and come? Who do I want to work with? What type of people do I enjoy working with? And make decisions that way. And Don't make decisions based on money or out of fear. Yeah. If, if you build it and you build it something that that has the environment and the culture that you enjoy working in and it doesn't work out. It doesn't work out. That's, I know that sounds tough, but that's better than being miserable 25 years for 25 years of your life. And you have a business that is, yeah, paying your
0: bills and providing a decent lifestyle, but you're a miserable person. There's no fulfillment in that, (laughs) even though it may sound like there is. You said something in the beginning about trying to determine the culture of the client. Tell me a little more about what did you mean by that and how do you go figuring out the culture of a, you know this other company and deciding whether you want to work with them or not? So we have a
1: no-jerk rule. We won't work with jerks. We fire clients every year of all sizes. Um, we fired some of our biggest clients
0: over the jerk rule and... Hopefully none of those are former clients are listening now. Yeah, know that they're the jerks. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, if they've been fired for the jerk role, they know they were fired for the jerk role. And so you, you start weeding out a lot. But the most important thing is if you stick to what is a good for you, what is a good customer for you, the market over time learns what is a good client customer for you. And so the quality of the referrals that come to you on what is a good fit improves over time because right. the market figures it out. The, if you don't just, if you're disciplined into, we want to work with entrepreneurs. We want to work with entrepreneurial culture companies. Right. And someone refers us a 60 year old manufacturing company. It's a family owned business and it's a lifestyle business. The family, they're not growing it. They're not interested in that. They're just interested in clipping coupons. It's a great business. It's a great client. It's a tough client for us. Right. And so, you have to say no to that client, even though it's probably a large client. They're going to pay. Could their be bills. profitable. Yeah, right. all those things. You ha- and you say no to some of those types of clients. The market really quickly figures out. Okay, I, this is the type of cultured client or type of company
0: or person that I need to refer to Calvate ferguson
1: yeah. I think, so it just comes down to discipline.
0: I was going to say, you know, and I think it was Jim Collins, right, And Good to Great said, discipline thought, discipline action, right? And so I agree that we talk here about terms of you know, being intentional about our values, living them daily, you know, tying behaviors to them. When you then do that for a while, things be, that becomes institutional. And I think that's kind of what I align with what you're saying is if, you're thoughtful and disciplined over time. Not only do you get that culture, culture internally, but the market starts to know who you are, identifies, you know, you have an identity, whether you it's the one you want or not, right? And if you're intentional about those things, it'll be the one you want. And then I think over time, it becomes less of an issue and you, I guess, you deal with less jerks. You hope.
1: But, you know, that's a good, I mean, if you're making your decisions on your business based on money… You're taking that company, oh yeah, and then you wonder why play that forward a hundred times over the next ten years, and you wonder why you now you're no longer worried about the money because you're making a decent living or what you know whatever, and you wonder why this company this you have turnover right yeah turnover, and you wonder why the culture isn't really what you want, and you know all those things you know, but I just really believe that. Business owners that make decisions based on money, your culture is money, right? Let's not pretend it's anything else. It's money. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that, but beyond, but lean in and live into that. Right. And then now you're going to, people are going to congregate around you and within the company. That's what drives them as well. Most important, um, so you make decisions just based on money, you're going to you're going to make a lot of decisions that make it very difficult if you want a culture that's not money driven. Right. Well,
0: let's talk a little bit about just you. How would you describe your leadership style?
1: So I am not a micromanager. I think my folks would tell you that and I figured that out early on. So I am hey, we're at point A, we need to get to point B. This is where what point B looks like. I You get there. You have the ability to make the decisions to get there. I'm available to bounce things off of, to help make, if it's a high-risk decision, to help to make that decision. But I give my people a lot of freedom to do that. Honestly, that stresses some people out. Right. They don't like that much open range, and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying that my way is right. It's just I've tried to change, and I can't. And, And then I don't throw my folks under the bus at all. If you're going to give someone that much freedom... To to make their decisions and get there, then you have to accept the responsibility to. In my case, the partner group. So, you know what I tell my folks is: look, we're in this car and you're driving the car. But remember, I'm the hood ornament on the front of that car. So, you run this thing into a wall, I'm hitting first. Right. And and so I'm not a micromanager. I am. I view myself as a resource to my folks and a coach to my folks that work directly for me and with me, but my primary job is to be looking way down the road and positioning the organization and the business to not slowly fall off the ditch or to take advantage of opportunities that are way down the road. And the rest of the partner group and the operations team that work with me, they need to deal with the short and midterm to get there. So I've got to give them the freedom to to get to the short and midterm while I'm looking you know, a hundred miles down the road and making
0: sure we're staying on course. So very good. So any anything you point to as a setback or misstep or failure that you learned from that you think helped mold you into the leader entrepreneur that you are today? Oh lots.
1: <laughs> Most um, people say that. Like, How long do we have? Yeah, <laughs> lots, lots. You know, I think I made a lot of mistakes early in my career where I thought I was the smartest person in the room and, you know, felt like I, you know, I knew best no matter who all was sitting in, around the table or in the room or working the problem. A lot of times that led to some bad decisions and some mistakes. I, I tell you what, probably the biggest lesson I've or the biggest picture of that happening was when I retired from Halliburton. Before, when I was in public practice, my biggest client before going into industry was the largest franchisor of Great American Cookie Companies. And he was a pharmacist. A what? Great American Cookie Companies. Oh, okay. And he was a pharmacist that got into this business. He had like 45 Great American Cookie com- Companies. And it just, it was just mailbox money. And he, everybody called him Doc because he was a pharmacist before this. So when I retired from Halliburton, I'm like, okay, I need some, I'm going to do something. And I looked into doing franchising, but all the big franchises required you to have prior franchise experience. And I thought, well, I, that's stupid. I'm a pretty smart guy. I, this is dumb. This is not a complicated business. But Donuts did not. So I opened up Donuts, Southern-Made Donut Shops. Okay. And I figured out within six weeks why they require you to have franchising experience. (laughs) And I could not sell out of that thing fast enough. And that was a huge lesson. One, it was very humbling. (laughs) I bet. I remember when... So there was this old guy from Cambodia that came and looked at the donut shops. He had a bunch of donut shops down in Galveston, League City and stuff. And uh, I met him at one of the donut shops closest to my house after like late morning on a Saturday. And uh, we're sitting there at a tab- at our patio table outside in front of the shop. And uh, he asked me a few questions and he finally said, let me ask you one more question. Why did you do donuts? And I said, what do you mean? He said, listen, we're not educated here. We don't speak the language real well. We... You know, this is a good this is a good path for us. Why did you do donuts? <laughs> and it was such it was like a minute interaction on that, and it was it stuck with me forever, and humbled me so much that it impacted me it has impacted me for the rest of my career. And I, and of course, I at the time I was pretty frustrated. I was like, look, do you want the donut shops or not?
0: Right. I <laughs> but um, but anyway. Okay, I've never pictured you as a donut maker, but I have a new perspective on you now. Oh, it's, <laughs>
1: there's a reason why they have those requirements. <laughs>
0: yeah. All right, so th- you may answer what is my next question, but uh, what was your most interesting or honest job? So, uh, other than donuts,
1: yeah, yeah. So I will tell you, uh, as opposed to job, the probably one of the most interesting experiences in my entire career was being involved with negotiating with gorillas in Columbia over a kidnapped. Oh, wow. Ops manager. And so we had it when I was at Halliburton, we had an Ops manager that was kidnapped by gorillas in Columbia on the way from the airport. It took, we, you know, Lloyd's of London has two groups that fly around if you have kidnapped or ransom insurance with them and just negotiate with these folks. And so it took us almost three weeks, about almost $2 million to get the guy back. So we fly him back. And that was all interesting in and of itself, negotiating with these folks. Get them back and say, okay, what happened? We got to debrief on this, figure out, you know, how do we, how, what happened? How do we protect this from happening again? And he said, well, it's coming out of the airport. We had a flat tire pulled over. It was, it, it was all staged. And they got me, he said, hit on, drive a couple hours out in the jungle take the hood off. It's a big ranch style house. There's a walkway, a fence. It's a stone fence about four feet tall around the entire property. I walk up the walkway. The general meets me down the walkway and says, listen, you can go anywhere on this property. You can ask me for anything you want, whatever you want to eat, whatever you want to drink, whatever you want to smoke, ask me, we'll get it for you. Anywhere on this property. But if you step," Outside that fence we'll shoot you dead. Oh. <laughs> and he said he kinda of, he lived the life of a king for about two weeks. So he, wanted, well, I was waiting to, on he you wanted to he wanted to get kidnapped every few years. <laughs> and so anyway, they didn't all turn out that way. But it was really kind of seeing that and being in the middle of that was just was a different side of the world that you know yeah. a lot of people don't get a view into. It is interesting.
0: All right, so a little maybe lighter hearted than that. You're Texans, I always ask all my guests whether they're Texan or not. Tex-Mex or barbecue? Tex-Mex. Okay. No hesitation. Not even close. <laughs> okay. Tex-Mex. All right. And then we'll wrap it up. I always curious to know if you could take a 30-day sabbatical, where would you go and what would you do? I would go
1: to Italy and up through France. And and I actually do take a sabbatical. I try, not for 30 days, but a week a year. Where When I pull out, I turn the phone off and disconnect it. And a week a year, good for you. I think it's important for everybody. But yeah, Italy and up through France and just kind of drop off the face of the earth.
0: What are you planning to do this year for your week off? I'm actually going to Italy for 15 days. Okay. So So there you go. Yeah, That that informed the answer. Yeah. Jason, it was great having you on. Loved hearing your story, how you you and Jim have built this CPA firm to what it is. And it's no wonder it's been as successful as it has been and will continue to be. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate talking. And there we have it, another great episode. Don't forget to check out the show notes at boyermiller.com forward slash podcast. And you can find out more about all the ways our firm can help you at boyermiller.com. That's it for this episode. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you next time.